Good afternoon, saints. And hello, everybody else that might be watching this. Uh, it's actually the 5th of January today, and uh, we're recording the message for the 24th of January right now. And so we are going to speak. Um, we're working our way towards, towards the first letter in the sequence of seven letters in the book of Revelation. But we have um, explained that we start our understanding of the letters with the seventh letter because in it, it describes the salvation process. In the seventh letter, it very clearly speaks about um, the, the overcoming, which leads to us being seated with him in heavenly places. Now, we know that this refers to salvation itself, being reborn. Uh, according to what we have discussed, that's written in the book of Ephesians, that clearly says that we have been raised with him and that we are seated with him in heavenly places because we, he raised us up together with him. And so this is very important to understand, so please remind yourselves of that. And um, we see that as we worked, we've spent quite a bit of time to work through the seventh letter because it's kind of a, 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 a very important, Important aspect to understanding what's happening with the letters. It's also a summed up account of salvation itself. And, um, and you would have uh, now watched the teaching last week on the uh, treasure, that's the kingdom of heaven. And we recheck value system and the value of um, the kingdom of heaven and our process through baptism, the the adjustment in value system in seeing ourselves in relation to uh, the Lord himself, the kingdom of heaven. We, we would have taught on all of that. And the week before, we would have taught on um, the consequences that we see uh, for not walking faithfully in these letters. Yeah. Right. Not overcoming. And not overcoming. So we have paid attention to the, the consequences of not overcoming. But now let's go back. Now we're assuming that we are now looking at the process of the believer according to the seventh letter, and that would be Revelation chapter, chapter 3, and the seventh letter would be verse 14 to 22. In this letter, uh, we have looked at, uh, he says, if you look for him, he's going to vomit you out of his mouth. So the person that has been brought to a boiling point, that's hot, that is the person that's come to salvation. And the second picture of salvation here is that he stands at the door and knocks. He's on the outside of the door. His positioning is outside. you the one that has to open the door. That's the call of God. Mm -hmm. And then he comes in to dine with us. And we would have paid attention to that explanation as well. Now, we are going to just go to the end of it, the overcoming part. Verse 21, he says, To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. I also, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Okay. Now, firstly, we see that for the person who overcomes, he firstly comes in and he dines with that person. Mm -hmm. And then for the person that overcame, he will grant to sit with him on his throne. Now, this is the salvation positioning. Yes. And now... We are going to go to the first letter in the sequence of seven letters in the book of Revelation. The reason why we're doing this study is because at the end of each of these letters, 
He says to those who overcome, he will give something, he will mm. grant something. Mm. Something will be put in place. And um, let's call it rewards. It's, we want to liken it just for a picture, liken it to some of the uh, computer games or TV games. Now, uh, I have to now just, uh, uh, I've got to admit, I've got to confess. The last time I played a TV or computer game was probably in the days of Atari. So in the days when we still called them TV, TV games. games, exactly. <laughs> so, but many of these games had levels. You've got to get through level one to move to level two, and in the going over to the levels, you get a reward. You get something to help you get through level two. Now it's amazing how the real world reflects the Bible, because this is exactly what the seven letters represent. We are going to walk a very long road with the Lord when it comes to overcoming. Some of us were blessed enough and He had enough mercy and grace in us to call us early enough so that we can be allowed to overcome. In this overcoming process, we want to put in place um, a very clear a reference uh, point a really very clear uh, systematic way of overcoming and we want to do it the same way every time so step one in overcoming was getting saved <laughs> now you're seated <laughs> in heavenly places with messiah this is the starting point the game starts him drawing you through the first session of overcoming and that is laying down self uh, a priority change, an understanding of how everything works. You have a revelation of the Lord. You have a revelation of eternal life. You have a revelation of New Jerusalem, mm. of your need to be forgiven, of your need to be saved. And or you go through the whole process, made it through the water, and you are resurrected, renewed, a brand new, a new creation, seated with Him in heavenly places. And now, the long process of walking out our faith starts. And yes, it's a joyous process. It's full of joy. It's a wonderful process. And it's a wonderful adventure. But let's be real. Certain things commonly happen with believers. Mm. Mm. Okay. And uh, this is where we pick up. We're going to learn from these lessons. What is it that happens? Why do we need to continuously overcome? And why do we need these... Um, Rewards yes. that strengthen us and enable us. What do we have to watch out for? Mm. What's the consequences? And uh, what can we gain as far as understanding this process of overcoming? Okay, mm. Why are we doing this study? We want to establish a systematic, orderly process and plan strategy for overcoming. We want to do it the same way every time. Every time that we realize I need to overcome, we want to go to step one, step two, step three. Never mix up the steps. Okay. But let's just do a study of this first letter. Mm. And Nadia, you're going to take us right into it. Right. Okay. So we're in Revelation chapter two. And we're going to read it from the start. So. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write. These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Now, before we start looking at what he writes in the letter to them, 
We're going to focus on this first verse where he introduces himself. Now, you'll, you'll notice if you read through all seven letters, uh, every time he starts with an introduction of himself, a certain introduction. And this is extremely important. It's not just him kind of, we've said this before, even in the letters that the, the apostles write. In the introduction, it's not just them saying hi and, you know, a nice message. It, it's, it's full of meaning and importance. And in this case, where the Lord introduces himself and introduces certain aspects of himself, we see that in these introductions, actually, he, he already kind of conveys the heart of what the letter is going mm. to, going to com uh, communicate to the church. So we don't want to just kind of read over it and say, okay, yes, he is the one with the golden or with the stars and the golden lampstands. And okay, what does the letter say? Because what he introduces is actually already going to convey so much of what he's trying to communicate in this letter. So let's look a bit more in depth at this. Now, to do that, we're going to go up a bit into chapter one. Uh, where we actually see, so John starts writing, he goes into the vision, uh, where he says he was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and then he goes into this vision trance, where he sees the Lord, and then it says, then he fell as one dead, and then the Lord speaks to him. And so now we're going to read from verse 19 in chapter 1, where the Lord says to him, write the things which you have seen, and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. And then obviously when he starts the first letter, he's going to refer to this. So, okay, so let's look a bit at this. So the seven stars in his right hand and the seven lampstands. Now, first of all, the seven stars being in his right hand already, the fact that it's in his right hand uh, refers to authority. So he's the one with the ultimate authority because they are in his right hand. And his right hand is always the picture, manifestation of his strength, his might, his authority, his power. So the fact that the seven stars are in his right hand means he's the ultimate authority over them. So what do we learn about the Lord himself out of this piece of scripture? That's that he's not left-handed, but right-handed. <laughs> Make of that what you will. <laughs> okay, so now he goes on to say that the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Now, um, we're going to look a bit at the angels aspect of this, but I'll start by saying this. We want to be careful in assuming that or, or going into our picture or imagination of what we think this could mean. Generally, there's this idea out in the church world that there are seven angels for seven churches. So there's this angel that's ascribed to this one church and another angel that's ascribed to that church and this angel that's ascribed to that church. And they kind of, that's their church. They don't move to other churches. There's this angel and he belongs to this church. He's going to minister here. Um, and when we look now at the seven lampstands, we'll see why this can't be what it is. Um, so let's just start by looking at the, the seven angels or the seven spirits. So we know that angels, the word angel, 
comes from the idea of spirit. So it's a translation of spirit. And spirit, the idea or concept or root of, of, the, of spirit, comes from breath. But not just breath as in I breathe in and out. It's actually the movement of air. Now, movement of air, obviously, the moment we think of breath and movement of air and then how that evolves to spirit, I'm sure all of us are making the connection in our mind to when he created Adam out of the dust and then breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And there's this movement of air. And, um, and then we know uh, when before the ascension of Yahushua, he breathes on his disciples and says to them, receive the Holy Spirit. So we see there's this, this breath, this movement of air that then evolves into the idea of spirit. And this idea of spirit then evolved into the idea of angel. But if we take it even further back than breath or movement of air, what we actually end up with is when we... So there's a movement of air when we breathe, but there's also a movement of air when we speak. And this is actually where, where we find the, the depth and the crux of it. Um, <clears throat> especially because what we're going to read now is seven letters, so seven proclamations made by Yahushua himself to the churches. But even separate from that, apart from the fact that he's going to write them or address to them seven letters, he, there are actually seven angels, seven spirits, seven breaths, so seven proclamations to the churches apart from the seven letters that he's going to write so instead of thinking of the seven angels to the seven churches or the seven angels of the seven churches we should rather be looking at it as the the seven words to the churches the seven proclamations um while we were preparing Monet said something really beautiful that i'm going to try and quote as he said it so he said the seven breaths of God are the seven sons of God who presides over the churches. And this is so beautiful because if we connect it to Adam, who was the first who the first son of God who received the breath, the breath of God, um, this makes it such a beautiful picture. Now we're not saying these are humans that are presiding, but it's that which left God's mouth to preside over the church or the churches, the seven churches. Um, and so that's in essence what we, how we start looking at this. So instead of thinking of, oh, these seven angels, um, it's better to think of it, to, to start beholding it as the seven breaths or the seven proclamations made by God, sent out by God that now preside over the seven churches. And now, obviously, from here, we're going to take it to the fact that there are seven. Now, seven isn't, we, we know that seven, in biblical terms, is not just a random number. It's not seven necessarily per se specific. Uh, seven also represents the perfect number. So, in other words, it could be that it is referring specifically to seven, but it means at the same time that we're looking at the entire picture, the whole picture, the fulfilled picture. Um, so seven is always representative of a perfect number, um, a fulfilled uh, imagery, if you will. So if we just look at when we say seven sons of God, we're saying that all the ministering angels that are connected to the 
spoken proclamations of Yahweh mm -hmm. towards man. Now, an angel is just an extension of the Holy Spirit. But the Bible says they are ministering spirits, mm -hmm. ministering breaths. They all emanate from God. Mm -hmm. All they are is the extension of the will of Yahweh. Because an angel is not supposed to have his own will. The moment he has his own will, he's a fallen angel. Or do anything outside of Yahweh's will. Exactly. Mm. So, my arm is an extension of my mind. And my arm is there to do what my mind wants to do. Mm. So, I decide I want to take the glass and my hand does it. Now, I can identify the hand as my hand. But the hand is never supposed to do its own thing. Never supposed to just randomly mm. take action. My hand is just an extension of my will. And so angels are extensions of the will of God. And therefore an angel is a word that I would be, uh, we would do better and well to forget about the angel idea and go back to the breath idea, the spirit mm. idea, breath. So all angels are part of the proclamation, that which has been said by God, which has left him, that is angels. And they, all they have to do, what they live for, what they exist for, is to continue doing what he had already said. Mm. So from Yahweh, he speaks his will towards the earth and those that will live upon the earth. And the breath that leaves him, and remember, he fills the entire universe, is taken up by a thousand or a million angels. And the breath is taken up by these angels and brought towards, and they will continue for how long ever it takes to make sure that that which has left Yahweh as his, as his will, expressed will, will be established as mm -hmm. truth and will manifest. That's what angels do. Now, getting back to the seven, uh, to, un to get some idea of the seven mm -hmm. number as just representative of what is perfect and true and fulfilled, <clears throat> there's seven churches because there is seven days in the existence of creation. And the seven days represent 7,000 years, including the thousand-year reign. And so the church would uh, live and exist in various forms of development, in various seasons as a whole body through time, but it remains the church, mm. the body. Some members will die and others will be born. Uh, there will be movement and the Holy Spirit will build the body and there will be manifestations of God's will, but it's the church mm. from mm. Adam to the last believer. And for seven days, seven churches will manifest all the possible scenarios that's possible within the church, the negative and the positive. Mm. And within this, he places in his letters for us a sequence of seven steps of overcoming. And it's valid for every believer at all time uh, in every manifestation of the church throughout 6,000 years to give you some idea of how this works. Mm. Okay, uh, can you take us to the yes. actual wording? We've got to understand what he's talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, so, so just going back to verse 20, 
So, okay, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands, which you saw, are the seven churches. Now, okay, so now we're going to shift our gaze to the seven lampstands and try to gain understanding there. So, again, the seven would refer to the perfect number, seven. So, when he says the seven lampstands or the seven churches, um, so, first of all, we know that he's going to write to seven specific churches in specific cities, Ephesus, Smyrna. We're going to look at all of that now. Um, <clears throat> but obviously, when he's writing to the seven churches, the fact that he says seven means that he's not only specifically, exclusively writing these letters to some churches, these specific seven in these specific cities, and there's nothing for the rest. Um, firstly, there would be a problem with that because if we just look at the city of Ephesus, it doesn't exist anymore. It's ruins now. And if it existed in the book of Revelation, it's the book of the future. You see the problem. Mm. The city doesn't exist anymore. It hasn't existed for a very long time. The ruins have existed for quite a long time now, but the city doesn't exist anymore. So now, if we're going to look at the fact that the letter is written in the book of Revelation to the city of Ephesus, we're looking at a problem. So, back to the fact that it's seven spirits of the seven churches, the seven lampstands. So, that, so that's why the seven now becomes very important. So the seven is not just referring to seven specific churches. The seven is very important here as the perfect number, which means that these letters are written to the entire church. The entire church. Now, um, it, there is also the idea that the seven churches or the entire church um, meaning when we refer to these seven letters in the book of Revelation, there is the idea in the church that this is only applicable to the church age, which means that they only make it applicable since the day of Pentecost, and then when the Holy Spirit is poured out on, on the house of Cornelius, and now they say, okay, but now it's only applicable from the church age, because now there are churches as we know it now. Um, we understand that when we look at the Bible and the salvation plan of God, that the churches cannot only be applicable from the day of Pentecost onwards. Because we understand that church, the word church and the concept of church is actually just representative of the body of Messiah. The assembly. The assembly, if you will, of the saints. And that has been true and ongoing since Adam. Mm. And then through Abraham, who was the father of faith. And we even know that the covenant that was made with Abraham is the same covenant that exists now. Because Galatians says that the Lord didn't annul. So that covenant existed back then. We know that we have King David. We know that we have all these men of faith. Um, which proves that, and even to them, the Holy Spirit was ministering. Um, which means that it cannot be that they are now... Finally, off from the day of Pentecost, now the Holy Spirit's brought out, now the Holy Spirit ministers, and now there are seven angels to the seven churches because we know that the Holy Spirit has been ministering since the very beginning, which means that we're looking at seven churches, which means just the church, the church in its entire, entirety, but not just the church in our generation in its entirety, the church from the very beginning 
to the very end. So from the very first believer to the very last believer. This is what we're looking at when we're looking at the seven churches. So let's, let's make that clear. The church age started when Abel's sacrifice was accepted by God. The age of dispensation of grace was given to Paul, but it's not the beginning of grace. The grace age began when Abel's sacrifice was accepted by God. And the ministry of the Holy Spirit was the same all through. The only difference is, is that uh, in Yahushua establishing the baptism, through his death and resurrection makes it possible for us to be baptized into his death and resurrection. Now, the Gentiles... And every other person that are called by God has access to baptism, baptism to him. That's the only difference. Okay. But when it comes to that, we've got to understand that applying the seven, le- the seven letters in, Re- in Revelation to the church age is not correct. Yeah, the church age meaning from Pentecost onwards. Yeah. So let's apply this all through. So what we're saying is the seven letters are not just applicable since the day of Pentecost. They've always been applicable because the church is the church. It's the assembly, it's the body, it's every believer. Let's put it this way. Is King David seated with Messiah in heavenly places or not? Okay, so that, then the seven letters applicable to him. Kind of settles it. Yeah. Now, okay, so that's settled. Okay, now um, the last thing about the seven lampstands. Mm. Okay, so... Um, seven obviously refers to the perfect number, but now it's even more interesting because if we look at the seven lampstands and it being the seven churches, obviously it's referring to, so we have the, the kingdom of heaven realm and then we have the earthly realm. And obviously if we're going to look at the lampstands and the seven churches, then we're referring to the manifestation of the saints on earth. So the churches, the assembly is applicable to what's happening on earth. And now, seven becomes really interesting because if we just look geographically at what earth looks like and where assemblies can happen and meet, um, we're looking at seven geographical areas where this is possible. So we have uh, six continents being North and South America, and we have Africa, we have Europe, we have Asia, Australia, And then seventh, we're going to group together all the islands. So um, we know we have uh, between Australia and Asia, um, we have Indonesia and then the Philippines and all those islands. And then we have islands like Madagascar, we have islands like New Zealand uh, and then islands off the coast of South America and so on. And we could theoretically group those islands with the continents that they're closest to. Um, But the fact of the matter is that geographically, the earth is made up of continents and islands. And And Lesotho would be um, uh, grouped with the islands. (laughs) Okay, so so this is where the seven also becomes really profound. uh, Because we have these seven geographical areas... um, where we understand that the lampstands are. So, and even these lampstands through the ages, the lampstands have kind of lit up 
Uh, currently we see that the the fire is kind of burning mainly in Africa. There was a time when it was concentrated in Europe, in Germany and, and in England. There was a time when it was kind of concentrated in Russia, which would be more to the east, more to Asia. There was a time when it was concentrated more in the Americas and now we see it's kind of concentrated in, in Africa. Um, so that's just kind of also something interesting to keep in mind and also gives us more perspective into what we're looking at here. So, okay, so that's the seven angels and the what seven lampstands. What about what's written here, Asia? Oh, yes, okay. So now, since we're looking at um, seven cities, uh, if we go back to Revelation chapter 1, verse 11, uh, we see he's going to say, so what you see, write in the book, and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Now, as we said, if it were true that these letters were addressed to these specific cities, firstly, we would have the problem of the fact that Ephesus, for a start, doesn't exist anymore as a city. And now, even more than that, Say the city of Ephesus did still exist, or that the letter was written to Ephesus in the way that it did exist then. Um, we would have to ask the question, okay, so if the letter is addressed to the church in Ephesus, for example, or say there was a letter addressed to the church in Cape Town, or someone made a reference to the church in Cape Town, is that then a reference to a specific church in Cape Town? Because let's face it, there are many churches. Um, or would it just be reference to the church? In other words, the assembly of believers in this geographical area. Because now you could even have outlying churches or outlying believers that are a bit outside of the church and even or outside of the city. And even they would be included when we talk of the church or the assembly. So, so here we start seeing, okay... So maybe it's not very specifically necessarily ref or um, meant for these specific cities. And now, when we see, it becomes even more clear when we look at, so what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia. Now, it could be that he wrote Asia, but I don't think Asia was named Asia necessarily back then. It actually says here that some of the... Uh uh, sources or texts omit uh, uh, which oh, are in Asia completely. So it could have read originally just um, write in a book and send it to the seven churches. Yeah. Full stop. And then also uh, there's some reference to it just originally meaning send it to the churches in the East. And so, forget about Asia. Asia didn't exist in that time. It's not the same at least as we understand it today. The, the geographical area existed. Anything east of Jerusalem was called by other names. The borders of countries were different. Whatever Asia was, was not Asia today. It was a land to the east. Yes, and remember, the, the modern world was actually relatively quite small. They hadn't traveled that far yet. So, which means that the furthest east that they had traveled, that would kind of be Asia. And yet we know that the landmass stretched much further. Mm. So, what they're actually referring to is the churches in the east. And now it would make sense for John 
who was actually one of the first apostles that traveled the furthest east that could have been mm. traveled in those days, it would make sense for him to have as a point of reference the seven biggest representative churches or cities with churches in the east. It is very important because we've, we've got to understand that if we accept it as just that the Lord specifically said, sent this letter to the church in Ephesus, then it would be a specific group of believers in a specific time in a specific area. Now, the, the city of Ephesus, there's nobody there. There's no church left. Okay. Now, if we saw this from that perspective, then it would cause us a huge problem because it would mean that it was only, the letter specifically is only applicable and valid for a group of people that has to overcome in a certain way. They have to do, make certain corrections. It would mean that only the group of people in that city at that time has left their first love. Now this we could still consider. But now the Lord is going to make them a promise. He says, if you overcome, mm -hmm. I will give to you of the fruit of life, from the tree of life that is in the midst of the garden, the paradise. I will give to you from the fruit of the tree of life to eat. And if this was a specific promise and offer, limited time period only, limited offer only, then we would have a huge problem because it means that years ago, a small group of people lived in a city that no longer exists. And he says, if you overcome, I will give to you of the fruit to eat. And they had access to the tree of life, a once-off deal, and never again. It means that none of this is applicable yeah, to us. That means this offer isn't made to us. It was just made to them. And you might say, well, that would be silly for someone to do it. You will not believe that in the last 20 years, there has been huge church movements that had made rulings, official rulings. I'm talking about... Uh, international church groups that said they are no longer going to and they're not, they're no longer allowed to teach from the seven letters the seven letters are not applicable to us because it was written only to those churches so this could happen so we want to correct that and for us in this fellowship we say it would have made sense for the apostle uh, john to he's sitting on an island god is giving him instruction write these letters send it to the churches now, it would have made sense to him to think the biggest representative of the churches, I'm going to choose seven, give the names of the letters, uh, the, the cities or churches or areas to the letters. Otherwise, he would have had to write a letter to the church number one, letter to the church number two, letter number two, which could have worked, but he didn't. And so we're making the decision that we're looking at it, that uh, these letters are applicable to the church throughout the mm. church age, throughout the world from generation to generation. And they remain valid and applicable mm. as God's word and his promise to every individual member of every church in every generation throughout time. Mm. Could it be, because I know when we looked at the seventh letter, we understand that the church that was actually at that time positioned in Laodicea um, that existed then with those specific group of believers, they were representative of a certain dynamic that had taken form in the church. Mm. But that doesn't mean that the letter was necessarily only applicable to them because the dynamic that obviously took form within their assembly of believers is a dynamic that has taken form in, in other assemblies as well. And so they were actually just representative of something happening in the body. 
But obviously, since they were assembly and they were part of the body, it could happen in any part of the body. Exactly. And so, obviously, if we look at all of these letters, they might have been addressed to specific churches, but those specific geographical area churches' assemblies might have just been representatives of movements, dynamics, certain things that were happening in the body. And obviously, those movements or dynamics weren't um, limited to certain time periods. This we know, we see this happening even around us now. So certain dynamics are taking form in the body. But, um, yeah. and then also, obviously, if, if, if there are seven letters to seven churches with seven angels, we see the 777. So there's this perfect number, um, which leads us to understand that even in these seven letters, um, the Lord is obviously going to address certain things, certain dynamics, certain issues um he's going to um uh, even lift out what he what he values what they did right but he's also going to look at what they did wrong and so obviously we see really the lord's heart what he's focused Mm. on what's important to him um which helps us immensely because we know that there are so many things that we could be busy with so many dynamics that we could be focusing on and looking at in the church world and things that are happening within the greater body of Messiah. But this helps us immensely because now we can really see what the Lord is focusing on, where his attention is, what's important to him. And now um, we drew this little sketch, which I'm going to try and show to the camera. Uh, I should actually draw it on the board. Just before you do that, we, we, we want to pick up here just to prove the point that it might be that in a certain church there was... A, a thing happening that looks like the Jezebel spirit. Mm. But it says specifically in this one letter in, in, in uh, chapter 2, verse uh, 20. It says, because you allowed that woman Jezebel, and it could in other texts says your wife Jezebel, your wife Jezebel, says to the church, <laughs> assuming you're speaking to the leadership, says you're allowing your wife Jezebel to minister. Well, actually, and to the angel of the church of Thyatira, right. Okay, now, here we can prove our point from this. The fact that Jezebel is a figure and representative, the real-life figure from many years before out of the Old Testament that didn't live in this geographical area at all. Exactly. And now the Lord is speaking to this church, says he, do you really think that some crazy nut called his daughter Jezebel? I doubt it. Okay, so it could happen. But yeah, he's saying that, uh, he's right, write this letter to the angel of the church. Now, the Catholic church even theorized that the angel of, angel of the church is referring to the bishop or the highest um, authority. authority of the church in that area and that's the angel so they actually went as far as saying that the the priests were the angels of the church or the bishops were the angels of the church or the archbishops were the angels of the church that, that's just nonsense you've got to be really dumb to accept that but here we see that uh, it's written to the authoritative representative says you allow that woman Jezebel to prophesy and to minister now Jezebel is representative of something it's a representative dynamic in a church and so we can substantiate our theory and our position from this that it is a general dynamic that's prevalent at times in every church 
Uh, this dynamic of this women ministering and prophesying, which she had no authority to, this has happened in many different churches all over the world. It will happen again. It has times. happened from generation to generation, and it remains applicable. It's something that needs to be addressed and watched out with every church. Mm-hmm. So you get the point. We can yes. move on from, from yes. that. Yes. Okay, now before we move on to the other thing, mm. let's move on. Let's let's just talk about the other thing that we see here. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Yes. So we're still back at chapter 1, verse 11. Yes. So we've sorted out, the Lord is saying, write a letter. Now, we know that this is general. For all church, all the time, all ages, mm. it's applicable all the time. But now he says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. What's significant? Okay. So Alpha and Omega is a... It's part of the Greek alphabet, and it's the first letter and the last letter. Now, the fact that um, it's Greek doesn't actually change the meaning that much. Um, so, so the alpha and the omega is the first letter and the last letter of the alphabet, which means it actually encompasses... So the fact that he says he's the alpha and the omega, he's encompassing, including the entire language. So... so um, we're going to see now it's not just the Greek language, but obviously all words are formed out of letters. And so if he's the first letter and the last letter, then he's including and encompassing all the letters, which means he encompasses all the words, all the expressions, so the language as a whole. But now, um, obviously since it's the, it's the Lord speaking, and he's speaking to, to John, the chances that he would have been speaking to him in Greek is is highly unlikely, although I'm not excluding that possibility. And the fact that it says Alpha and Omega doesn't, and I'm saying this, it doesn't take away from the depth of what he's communicating. However, if we consider that he was probably speaking in the Hebrew language, then what he would have said is he's the Aleph and the Taf, which is the first letter of the Hebrew language and the last letter of the Hebrew language. And then he encompasses the entire Hebrew language. Now, obviously, when we start talking about the Hebrew languages and the Hebrew alphabet, we know things get quite interesting. And so um, the Aleph, if we look at, at the picta, pictography, the picta language, the picture language, the Aleph, the picture would have been that of an ox head. And that represents leader or strength or... Um, Usually a a father figure is quite a good representative, but it's strong, it's first, it's leader. And then the taf, actually if you go look at the the picture language, it's a picture of crossed sticks. And it actually makes a picture of a cross. And then later it made a picture of this type of cross. But originally this was the picture it made. And uh, and the meaning behind the letter taf was mark or sign or monument. Which is now beautiful. So if he says he's the olive and the tav, not only is he referring to the alphabet, which means he refers to all the words that have ever been formed, and then language as a whole, the fact that he says olive and tav actually combines an idea of strong mark, or strong sign, or leading sign, or leading mark. Um, and then you get this picture of the ox head, which is the picture of the father figure, and then the picture of the cross. Which the, is ox, the, the ox, the olive, the ox is the picture of God. Exactly. In the early mind. It's if you if, yes, if you look at at the their idea, the way that they saw Yahweh was this picture of the ox, the strong leader. 
Um, so it might seem strange in our mindset, but that was actually like great respect. And the, the ox was the most powerful thing they knew. Exactly. There was nothing more powerful living creature on yeah, earth. Nothing stronger. So the only picture they could express is, is as strong as an ox. Exactly. So, so, but the, the fact of the matter is now, if we look at Alev Tav, we're looking at the entire gospel. Hmm. Uh, we're looking at the entire covenant, the Father and the cross. It's the entire salvation plan. And he says he is the Alev and the Tav. So he's not only the fulfillment of everything, he is in the... the so why this is important is when he says I'm Aleph Tav, and it translates beautifully into Greek because Alpha and Omega was exactly the same representative. Yes. So in translating, he's saying it doesn't matter which language you speak. Exactly. I have given you an alphabet because I've given you words and language to understand me. Language were made for the words of God to be communicated, understood and obeyed. Uh, every other use of language is um, have no value. It's wind, it's just like our breath is empty not breath. lasting. Mm. Empty breath. And so, in the end of the day, when all things and we're looking at the Book of Revelation, when all things are weighed out, judged, and what is going to be left over is everything that every person said, every idea, every song, every poem, every novel written. It's gone because it was worthless. When it comes to idea, language, thought, knowledge, all there ever was was what was in his mind. All there ever was what was he what is what he was going to say and communicate. Nothing else ever mattered. Nothing else ever had authority. Nothing else ever had weight. And in him coming and saying, "I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the Aleph Tav." He's uh, making this huge declaration. Remember when he says, write the uh, letter to the spirit of the church. He's, he's doing this massive thing. He's speaking to the church as it will exist over all of time. In every single place. He's speaking to every believer. He's speaking to the spirit in every believer and he is speaking the final word on everything. He's literally saying that what leaves my mouth is the only thing that's got authority or power. It's the only word that means anything. And that's why he is the word. And he's the word. And um, it's a great introduction to the way that he says. So there's four references to Alpha and Omega in the Bible. Two of them in the beginning of the book of Revelation and two at the end. Almost like um, like bookends. A beginning um, and an end. <laughs> and, and, and it's only him that could write this in this way. So uh, he gave us alphabet, gave us language. He gives the alphabet as a picture of the gospel. Uh, language itself is going to only have any value or meaning or authority when it's uh, used for the, the purpose of the gospel or proclaiming God's will. And, um, and Satan has just done this amazing, huge, stupid work on the earth where he would use writers to write mountains of stuff when the only book that really ever needed to be written was this one. The only words ever needed to be spoken was 
those that were given by the Lord. And that's why Yahushua says when he's on earth, he says he speaks nothing that the Father didn't give him to say. That's what makes him the Alpha and the Omega, the Olive and the Tav, because anything that he's ever going to speak is that which is eternal, that which will exist and have power and authority forever. And this is why we're placing so much emphasis on this particular section in the Bible, the seventh, the seven letters, because this is, he says, he puts all authority into this, and he says, I'm gonna compile a picture of everything that's gonna go wrong, everything that should be fixed, every uh, dynamic that's gonna happen in the church. I'm going to tell you exactly what I'm pleased with, what I'm not pleased, how it's going to go. And so we pick up on this letter in chapter 2. And we coming. remember we're coming from letter number 7. That was now the person is saved, seated in heavenly places. They've come through the uh, enormous struggle of going into the baptism water. And finally they came out, they renewed. There's joy, there's rest, there's uh, vision. They can see, they can understand things. There's this huge new person that understands the world from a different perspective that has access to the Father the Holy Spirit's functioning in them and this is where we start off and now they're going to go into the first three weeks three months three years of their walk and this is where we pick up on chapter in chapter 2 verse 1 now he goes and he says I know your works your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. Okay, so. We are going to step by step go through what, why is he saying what he's saying? Now, we have observed this over and over and over. And if you think of your walk and other people's walk, it doesn't matter the person that did the least. After they got saved. There's people that really, from the moment they came out of the baptism water up till now, it's been two months, three months, and they haven't done much. But, when they witness to us, from when they start coming to this ministry, about what they heard, what they experienced, they witness to us a few things every time. No matter who it is, if they have been impacted and they're on their way to baptism, and especially those that made it to the baptism water, they all witness to the same mm. thing. They witness to the fact that they need to repent from their previous works. They want to start over, do things over. They have a revelation after baptism, mm. new things to do. They want to work differently. They want to live differently. All those things, right? Okay. Then, they... I know your labor. He says, I know your labor. Now, this could have been the minimal amount of of labor, actually. It could have been just now you're reading your Bible, actually reading mm. your Bible for the first time. And remember, I mean, usually there's someone preparing for baptism. Let's not forget the, you know, the concentration, the effort that goes into that. That in mm. itself is a laboring effort. Because, mm. uh, you know, yeah. So this couldn't be a person after three years. It couldn't be an entire church after three years. That gets, but, but normally every person that's come through baptism in every church eventually gets to a place where this becomes applicable, where all of a sudden we realize, wait a second, we've left our first love. It's happened to every believer I know. 
or those at least that are wise enough to identify these things going to happen. So firstly, there was the works, the labor, patience. So there was the initial... Now, when, when these things fall short, we're going to look at that because mm. there is some people that go like, I know this is a long thing, I'm going to fix it. And they start off with patience, but patience runs out. There was a little bit of it. Um, then you rejected evil people. Now, do you want to maybe point out what's important here? Because this is quite important, actually. Yeah, so, okay, so it says, uh, and that you cannot bear those who are evil, and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. Now, generally, just back to um, when we first kind of start doing this, that we cannot bear those who are evil, and we've tested those, this is usually someone who's, who's come through the world, They've seen things going on and they've identified that generally what's happening out there, that's not truth. That's not right. Um, not according to God's word and his ways. And that's usually the first kind of level of this. And then... So, so we see people just after, before baptism, after baptism, the first season, they break relationship with people that they shouldn't be yoked with. They would go like, you know, I can't believe I was in that church for 10 years. They're not preaching the truth. They're not doing the right thing. We hear this all the time from every person. And so rejecting people that are evil. Yeah, because, okay, so it says, um, so you cannot bear those who are evil. Now, we obviously for, since the beginning days, have been strongly emphasizing the principle of not being yoked together with unbelievers. And this is where we see this happening. So the Lord actually commends them and saying, you cannot bear those who are evil. Now, in the Christian world, it's quite a popular saying to go, don't hate the sinner, hate the sin. But if a person is continuously sinning and it's coming from an evil place, then the Lord is commending them for the fact that they cannot bear those who are evil. They cannot bear those who are not godly. They cannot bear those who are not righteous. And the Lord is saying this is a good thing. So they're not yoked together with unbelievers and the Lord is commending them. He's saying this is, this is good. Well done. And this is something that normally takes form in a believer's life in the first season. Is that they do not want to be yoked together with unbelievers. And they reject that. Or they cannot bear that which is evil. Now evil is simply... There's obviously different levels of it. Mm. Somebody that goes against the word of God, rejects the truth, rejects, do not live in the right way. Mm. People break relationships usually early in their walk with mm. certain other people. People might end love relationships, um, friendships. Or friendships, all those things. So this is generally the first things that happen. Mm. And then we have this testimony from most people that says, oh, I can acknowledge now that um, those that said they were representing God, those who were preaching certain things, that was not right. And we've also mm. identified them. And that is this portion that says, um, uh, you have tested those who said they're apostles or those that said they're sent from God. Or yes, because we have apostles and you sent one. So. And from this scripture, we see that they were proven not to be. And you've, so, tested, you've tested, so not just you've said yeah. or you've found them, you've tested them and found they were lies. So they can be tested. A, a person that says he represents God can be tested. And the test is simple. Because it says you found them to be liars. 
Now, when a person says they're representing the truth, they're sent from God, but they're not speaking in line with, what are you going to use? To test them. To test them. The word. So, in the beginning, we go, oh, I'm hearing this is truth, I'm understanding this truth, this is not what that person said, so they're not truthful, they're a liar. And we, in the beginning uh, seasons, many of us had to make the call and make the decision, and people we thought were teaching us the right thing, we go, I've identified you as a false apostle, rejecting that. So, this is, these are things that happen. We can all identify with that process. It happens very quickly mm. in the beginning. But then, it says also that um, your patience, and we will talk about that again, patience, that um, you had patience, but it also says that they've labored for his name's sake. Very important, especially in the true church. Yes. They will in a, uh, immediately start in any form uh, applying themselves for his name's sake. Yes. Uh, people, might, people might do different things to, to adjust to the true name of God. It's very important. And we're not going to go into that because we've taught on the name so often. Yes, so, much, yeah. so all of this has taken place. And then all of a sudden the Lord comes and he says, um, I have this against you. That you have left your first love. Now this is not the first time we're teaching on this, but we're going to look at this. And this is how we're going to bring this teaching to uh, a close for now. We are going to, so we are going to look at this properly. You have left your first love. It's, this, is, this is not a small thing. This is a scary thing. Now people have often preached, oh, you've left your first love. They mean you've left Yahushua Mashiach. You've left the Lord. That's not necessarily the case. Many of the people that have grown lukewarm again, hasn't decided to leave the Lord. They haven't left the church. They haven't stopped worshipping the Lord. They haven't stopped believing. And especially considering that the first step is you're seated in heavenly places. So, yes. so that's not what we're talking And And about. the Lord starts, the Lord starts by saying, He's commending, He says, I know your works. Now remember the seventh letter went... I know your works that you are neither cold nor hot, but lukewarm. So he was referring to the works there. And we said that the first step is now, okay. So now he goes, I know your works and he's commending. So this is for someone whose works are at boiling point. And then he commends their works. So it's not like they've left the way. They've not backslidden. He knows their works and he's still commending their works. But now something has changed. Exactly. In three weeks, in three years time. For the church in general, maybe the whole group, or for the individual, because it's applicable on all sides. And we're going to look at what changed. So for us to understand how to correctly repent and correctly respond to the Lord's rebuke when he says, you've left your first love, we're going to have to answer one very, very, very important question. And that is, what is the first love? What is the Lord referring to when he says you have left your first love? So when he's speaking to this church, what did they leave? What did they forsake? Because if we can understand that, then we can understand because now he's going to follow this up by saying, remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works. So if we can understand what it is that can be left 
then we can understand how to correctly respond. Okay, so we're going to look at what is traditionally taught, but you have actually mentioned this already, that traditionally when this um, specific verse is taught, that you've left your first love, generally it's assumed that the first love is referring to the Lord himself, to the person of Yahushua HaMashiach. Now we've already said that this church is demonstrating the works of the way. So it's not that they've forsaken the way or forsaken the faith. Um, so that can't actually be what the Lord is referring to. And so I'm sure you can see or start to understand why it's so important that we actually gain very clear and very precise understanding of what the Lord is rebuking them for so that we can understand how to, first of all, um, not do it as far as possible and then if we do face this specific dynamic in our lives as a church or as an individual then we know how to correctly respond okay so nevertheless i have this against you that you have left your first love now like you said this is obviously not a small thing and if it's not the lord then what is it now, luckily, in this fellowship, um, we're quite confident that everyone went through these first steps. Uh, remember, this is the first letter, but the seventh letter is actually the first step. So this church, or the, the audience that is spoken to here, has already come through the first works. And so from experience, we all actually do know what the first love is because we've all been there we've all experienced it now think back think back to the beginning when we actually started when the lord started removing the veil from our eyes we started seeing and beholding uh, not only his person but everything surrounding him everything surrounding his kingdom in the previous teaching we looked at the the value of the kingdom and the, we looked at all the parables of the kingdom of heaven and that, um, so the parable that says that a man found a treasure in his field and he was willing to uh, go and sell everything they had to buy this field with the treasure. And the same with the merchant and the pole. So everything that we went through, everything that a believer goes through in these first steps when it comes to first love, it comes down to value. So we, a person starts walking this road and as the Lord opens our eyes and we start beholding truth and we start beholding his person, we realize that his value is so much more than anything that we could ever possess in our lives or on this earth or in this world. And so the first love is actually that action of giving up everything that we had, everything that we could ever have to gain him. To gain the kingdom, uh, to gain everything that uh, has that pertains to him, to his person and his kingdom, and the fact is that it's the first love, um, and love referring actually to remember love is keeping the commandments of God. So love is not just so first love is not just oh we fall in love with this person and we just want this person or we just fall in love with his kingdom and we want his kingdom. It's actually everything that's surrounding that. So if love is keeping the commandments of God, then we understand that first love comes down to I understand that he is everything and I'm nothing. Uh, I, 
the ultimate value in this life is to be conformed to the image of his son. Uh, to gain uh, the kingdom of heaven and leave my world. So everything in this earth that had value, uh, it's like when Paul says he counts all these things as rubbish. And actually the original word that he used is dung. So we count all these things as rubbish. But um, his kingdom and his person and his uh, predestination and his plans that he has and his will, all of that um, becomes the ultimate value and the ultimate treasure. Let's look at when Paul says he counts those things as dung. Dung. It. Okay. When 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 Paul says he counts those things as dung. It can help us understand what we experience as a complete value system change. Exactly. In the moments when we fell in love uh, with the Lord, but we didn't fall in love in an emotional. Uh, stupidity way mm. we came to our senses yes. came to understand what's real, what is true and so forth so when Paul talks about it he, he talks about his qualifications mm. as a learned man, whatever that would be so for Paul it was him being highly qualified and having devoted his life to the study of religious scriptures or the Torah and the prophets and the religious ideas of the day, the doctrines, he counts that as dumb. Mm -hmm. For us, that translates into all our qualifications, how well you did in school, how well you did in your career, uh, what degrees you have, what qualifications you have. With other words, anything that validates you in this world, mm. counted as dumb. Because the only thing that validates us eternally is our relationship in uh, being conformed to Him and being resurrected by His grace, by His, uh, his perfect will. Mm. So that translates into good works as well. Mm. So no more works that can bring us uh, righteousness or self-righteousness, but works just out of love. Now, you, continue, you can continue to explore what does Paul talk about. Because this helps us to understand mm. the dynamic of staying in that place where everything became clear, everything started making sense. Yes. We saw ourselves in relation to what we might have achieved on, in the world mm. and we learn and we have learned that things are without value. Mm. And I've seen believers come to this clarity and understanding and then have to go through a long process over three, four, five years of him teaching them these things have no value because we realize it in the beginning, but mm. then we don't continue in that realization. Exactly. We kind of start ascribing value again to the fact that I was born into a wealthy uh, family or I was born into an ac academic family mm. or I'm a self-made man. Or I've worked hard to get where I, where I am. Mm. Or any other value. Mm. Um, looks, achievements, own dreams, own hopes. Mm. The dreams and ambitions. aspirations you have for your children. Yeah. The way your children are doing in school. Mm. When they perform and you start making, adding that to your value system, your self-value. Mm that would be a, a very big mm. mistake mm. because then the Lord would have to teach you yes. 
how much value these things have in eternity. We only have what He's given us. Mm. Okay, so keep this in mind as mm. we continue mm. looking at first love. Mm. So remember, because in the next verse, in verse 5, when He says, Remember therefore from where you have fallen, He says, Repent and do the first works. So, so this is where it, it, where it all connects. Now, in most believers' life, there's this kind of pattern that one can identify. So, we all understand from experience that as the Lord opened our eyes, remember we were kind of lukewarm or cold. Uh, that was the walk we were walking. So, a believer generally, well, always, cold or lukewarm. But for most of us and most people that have come to this fellowship, they started from a lukewarm place. Now the Lord starts showing us our state. So remember, he says, you thought you were rich, but actually you're poor and naked and miserable. So the Lord starts showing us that the things we thought had value actually has no value. And the things we thought that made us rich actually makes us poor because we're poor in, in spirit. And, uh, and so those are the kind of first revelations that we have that also that's where Paul ends up again. When he goes, oh, all these things that I thought had value in my life actually have no eternal value because they're passing away. And so the Lord starts showing us what value he has in his kingdom. And what if we remember, he says, um, uh, where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. So he says, lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. And this is actually what we start doing in those first works. We start realizing that everything that I'm doing here is for naught. Um, because it's just everything I've done just forms part of this world and the world is passing away. So now we start actually laying up for ourselves treasures in heaven. We start uh, giving all of this up so that we can gain as much as we can, even if it's a little bit. But whatever we have, we want to trade that with the Lord so that we can gain um, the kingdom and, and gain some of that gold. And... Um, and then the first works comes down to this, and we've done this many times before, but I want to remind everyone of this dynamic. Uh, we're going to refer back to this a bit later. But remember, we've always, we've, for a very long time, we've referred to the, the two realms. The realm of the kingdom of heaven and the earthly realm. And what happens in our first works with the first love is as we start as this realm starts losing its value utterly and completely i'm sure we can all remember if you think back and not just for the people in this fellowship but anyone who's had this experience and have gone through these first works everything on earth starts losing its value and it doesn't just lose its value we actually actively start laying these things down so that we can gain the kingdom of heaven and as we do that we understand and this is why we laid such emphasis on our positioning that's referred to in the seventh letter remember it says that the father then conveys us from the earthly realm into the kingdom of the son of his love and this is where it says in Ephesians then that now in resurrection we are seated with him in heavenly places on his throne. And this is what he says in the seventh letter that we are seat, that he will grant us to be seated with him on his throne and that we are also seated with him at the table. Remember we, we did look at the positioning. 
So this is what happens. This is the first works. We lay down everything so that we can be conveyed into the kingdom. And this is then our reality. This floods our minds and our beings and it becomes our complete and utter reality that we are now citizens in the kingdom of heaven. We are seated with him on his throne. We are seated with him at the table. He's teaching us. There's relationship. There's authority. And this is the experiential reality as well as the kingdom and eternal reality. And this is what, so, so we gave up everything to gain that. So, so we've seen this happen so many times. People go through the initial uh, wedding, being in, uh, being brought into oneness with the Lord process. And we see this thing happening with people after baptism over and over. We don't see the value in our jobs anymore. It just loses its value. We don't see the value in the things of the world anymore. Without, otherwise, all the things of this worldly realm loses its value, its draw for a little while. Mm. People say, well, I don't even want to go back to work. I want to mm. spend all my time with God. I want to spend all my time in the Word. All mm. I want to do is be with Him. People have said they don't want to make them. food anymore. They don't want to do the chores in the house. They just want to actually sell their houses and just move into a room somewhere because they want to spend as much time as they possibly have just spending it with the Lord, spending it in prayer in His Word. So we, we know this is good. That's a good thing. Mm-hmm. It's a good thing because it, we have a reset time where that's the first love time where anything that has to do with us being with the lord that's got value that is what we want that's priority we don't want to get involved with the useless things of the world anymore until the young man that was so uh, in love with the savior that all he wanted to do was spend as much time and energy and, and attention with on, on, on the one that he loves until the time comes when he's going to get married to the woman in his life. Now that is godly. God gave us marriage and relationships. And the two of them were supposed to continue in from that place and stay in that place where they're going to love each other, but they're going to love the Lord together. Now the wedding has to be organized. Mm. So the value system remains that I love the Lord with everything. This person wanted to give up his job, his career, to spend time with God a few months ago. But now that the wedding comes up, all of a sudden you see them just being pulled in to the venue, the dress, the food, the guests. The flowers. Photographer, the flowers. It's just an example. Of how this happens. We see a person that was ready to give up their career, earn less money just to spend more time with the Lord. All of a sudden, after a few months, the the same person that wanted to give up all material things, all of a sudden has to redo the bathroom in the house. And when you start choosing the tiles and stuff, they get sucked in and all of a sudden, the same person that wanted nothing to do with worldly value systems anymore because the Lord was everything, can be pulled into redoing the bathroom and never realize that they've left their first love. Now, I'm not saying don't do a decent job on the bathroom. 
but it's a remaining in a position mm. where your value system, where you understand the world, you understand where the value systems lie. We still do the practical things in the world. Mm. A person is ready to do anything for the Lord until uh, their daughter uh, becomes uh, uh, the, 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 the best performer in academics on, in high school in a class, in matric. Then all of a sudden, all the attention is on preparing her for university. Mm. We're talking about a balance shift. Mm. And that's falling. So you can continue exactly from there. Yeah, as we this is say. very good. So, and this is really important. The reason we're pointing it out is because remember I said there's a pattern that one can actually see in most, if not all, believers' lives. So we start out, so a believer would start out with this overwhelming um, of sensation of making the Lord their first priority in everything. And then if we give it about, on an average, about three to six months, it seems like the fire just cools down a little bit. And, um, and most of the times it doesn't seem very harmful. It, it mostly just seems like the dynamic of, okay, they were saved and it was wonderful and overwhelming and glorious. But then they kind of settle down and settle in because now, remember, and the, the kind of the way we justified is because remember, uh, life on earth continues. They still have to work. They still have to make a living. They still have to eat. There's still washing to be done. And the kids still need to go to school. And, you know, the, life goes on. And so, generally, the things that, that kind of um, shifts our focus back to this realm doesn't seem harmful. Not necessarily. It could, but not necessarily. And generally, it doesn't, it isn't harmful. Um, it's just, it just seems like normal life continuing. And so a believer could even say, well, you know, it's not, it wasn't my intention to, to not have the Lord as my priority anymore. It wasn't my intention to shift my focus back, but life goes on. And this is where we really, really want to put emphasis on the wording that the Lord uses. Because it doesn't say, have this against you, that you've accidentally left your first love. Or that you were forced to shift your focus from your first love. Uh, it doesn't take pity on them either. He actually, he says very clearly, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Mm. You left And this is, this is really, really, really important. So, remember the first works were this. We're being repositioned from the earthly realm into the kingdom of heaven where we were seated with him on his throne and seated with him at the table. And that was supposed to be our positioning from there on out. And this is why we did this room. So now, if it says you left... That means you, you got up from where you were sitting with him, both at the table and on his throne. The person got up and they left. It's not like they suddenly opened their eyes and, oh, where am I? To leave a room, you need to first get up and then you leave one step at a time. That's how you leave a room. You don't just all of a sudden 
appear somewhere else. And this is why we redrew this sketch on the board, where we looked at when we looked at, when we did the teaching on our positioning that he refers to in the seventh letter. Remember, we said he knocks at the door. We open up. He comes in. We're seated at the table, and then we looked at this dynamic of the back rooms, and we did discuss that. So I'm sure you can all remember. Otherwise, go look at the teaching again. But if we are not seated at the table with him anymore, it's not like something happened to us and now we're not at the table. For us to not be at the table, we have to get up and leave. And this is where we get to the crux of what he's saying. I've this against you, that you've left your first love. Because generally we tend to think that we were, we were kind of victims of life and of the world and these things pulled us back and it wasn't our fault because we did love the Lord and clearly our attention was on him and he was our priority but now things happen to us and that's why we're, the flame isn't burning as hot as it did in the beginning and the fact is that actually we're not victims we are perpetrators and that's why the Lord is rebuking but remember he rebukes and chastens those whom he loves so this is an invitation back <clears throat> And the main reason why, why this happens, why a believer would get up and leave, why a believer would leave their first love, and this is what you've been laying down in layers already, is value. Let me explain. So in the beginning, the first works was when anything in this world and everything in this world lost its value in its entirety. And anything, the only thing that had value was the Lord himself and his kingdom and his ways. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's the only thing that had value. And the way we leave our first love practically is, and this is what we said, if you're going to leave a room, you do it step by step. So practically, this is what it looks like. It's when we start ascribing small amounts of value to that which we left in the beginning. And this is why we said it, it doesn't seem like harm, harmful things. It's our careers. We start ascribing a little bit of value again to our careers. We start ascribing a little bit of, bit, little bit of value to the income we have. A little bit of value to the um, uh, qualifications that we have. A little bit of value to family time. A little bit of value to... Uh, our holidays, to our dreams and our aspirations. And I'm not saying that these things are just wrong. Okay, I'm not saying that you know we should just ignore them and give up everything and we shouldn't honor what the Lord has given us because many of these things have been gifted by the Lord and there is an honoring. So if he has blessed us with, with a steady job and income, then we can honor him in that. But it's the moment we start ascribing value to us in those things that we start leaving our first love, step by step. And all of these things are rooted in doubt and unbelief. And this is what we, we for those who've heard these teachings before, when we've taught on this first letter in Revelation, you would have heard many times, every time we've said, that the overcoming that the Lord is referring to here is overcoming doubt and unbelief. And the reason it's doubt and unbelief, because the only way we can start losing uh, value 
in the kingdom of heaven and start gaining or ascribing value again to the things in the earthly realm is when it comes to doubt and unbelief. You see, most people don't cognitively go through this process in any way because the value system is going to remain exactly the same. Mm. The value what? system in the begin was, beginning was that I love the Lord with all my heart and all my strength. That's the value system. Yes. So for most people, that's going to stay intact. Mm. This, you can go, the person will go through this entire process of falling. He says, see how far you've fallen from where you've fallen. A person fell all the way from being seated in heavenly places right back to being um, uh, standing on their own feet again in the world. A person can fall all the way from walking in the spirit to being in the flesh. And the value system didn't change. And that's where the deception comes in. The deception for most people comes into the equation where we don't realize that we have fallen. Because the value system remained the same. My value system is I love the Lord. I went through baptism. I'm living for the Lord. I'm saved. I have a relationship with the Lord. I do pray. I do spend time in in the Word. And because the value system is is something that I've established as my truth, Mm. when I'm no longer spending time in the Word, I won't realize it. It's a vague realization, but I can deny myself uh, the rea- from realizing it for days or weeks, or some people can even go months, where they have slowly but surely cooled down, but the value system remains the same. Mm. If you ask them, they'll say, we love the Lord. And this is what we've got to watch out for, because this is the way this process works and why it is so subtle. That... Uh, we, each person that has gone through this initial process, each person that has, that has the first love, okay, so it's not, this isn't applicable to anybody that has not come through the process of laying down your life and be resurrected and seated with Him in heavenly places. It's not applicable to a person that hasn't opened the door and actually haven't had the reality time at the table with the Lord. Mm. This letter has nothing to do with a person that's not reborn. Mm. It's not applicable. It doesn't help for any person that has not been baptized, died and resurrected, seated with him in heavenly places, seated with him at the table. This letter it has nothing to do with a person that's not reborn. So a person that has been baptized as a baby and hasn't been baptized as a grown-up in repentance, is not resurrected, them reading this letter is useless. It's got nothing to do with them. It's not for them. Not written for them. It's got nothing to do with them. So you cannot leave your first love if you haven't been um, espoused Mm. yet. So this is only applicable to those who have been espoused to the Lord. Now, so you have to fall from a certain positioning. If you haven't been there, you can't fall from there. Right. Mm. But this falling can be so subtle because you leave one step at a time. And so basically what we're saying is that what we understand here is the repenting part, the overcoming part, is what do you overcome? You overcome double-mindedness. That's doubt and unbelief. To 
understand and sum up doubt and unbelief, double-mindedness. A double-value system, two ways of thinking. With other words, you entertain one thought with another thought and these thoughts are opposite to each other. You entertain uh, two different opposing value systems. Mm. And practically, we're just going to go practical now. It's as simple as this. The person that in the first three weeks after being baptized, all they wanted to do is spend time with God. They said, I don't have enough time to be in the Word. Uh, I wish I had more time. I want to take unpaid leave from... We've heard this a hundred times. People say, I want to take unpaid leave for a month or two to spend time with the Lord. That person, a few months later... Um, Value system, they still love the Lord the same. Practically, mm -hmm. they now would rather watch sports on TV than actually spending time with the Lord. Now, I'm not saying that we don't have time for other things. Mm -hmm. The priority system, the value system, hasn't remained the same as in the beginning. Because it's first love stories. Now, we don't fix this, we don't repent by... A way of our value system. The value system remains in mm. place. He says, do the works you did at first. Now, it says, if we want to understand how to repent, it clearly says, remember. Mm. Remember from where you fall. So, the, the key here to overcoming is remembering. And that's why we have to have the practical reality experience with the Lord in His presence, mm. being in the passionate heat of that love relationship as being espoused to the Lord. Remember the moments when you first opened the door and the Lord Himself in all His glory came in and sat down with you at the table. Remember the first moments of Him dining with you when he was feeding you the word. Remember the first moments after baptism when you opened the Bible and it was all new and you had all this potential in front of you and you thought, uh, how will I ever... I'll, remember the feeling when we wanted to read everything at the same time. We wished we could just read through the whole Bible again because every verse was new. He was revealing the depth of the mysteries to us. He was revealing His glory to us. We were getting to understand His heart. We had revelation of Him as a person. We started having revelation of the Father, of Yahweh. We were walking in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit was real inside of us. We were worshipping in our sleep in the night. Uh, many people report, and this is my experience as well, that you're sleeping, but you wake up knowing that He was teaching you while you were sleeping. And... Um, and, and oftentimes we wake up and the first thought is how much we love the Lord and hollow Holy Spirit and, and we want to be with you. And we would rather have another hour to, to be with you, but we have to go to work and we wish we all the way to work in the car. And we can't wait for lunchtime to grab our Bibles and read a little bit more. And we can't wait for the kids to go to bed at night because then we can have a bit more time with the Lord and that was the first passionate moments of this uh, eternal uh, love affair. And then the Bible calls it the marriage, the wedding feast. So that table is 
the wedding feast. Show us how this has worked into that. Can you? So when when we look at uh, verse four, where it says that you have left your first love. So first is obviously first or priority or most important, and then this word love um, can also actually just mean love feast, love feast. Primarily meaning the primary meaning of that Hebraic word or the Greek word is love feast. And so we can connect it to... To the wedding feast. And this is why the seated at the table becomes so beautiful. Because he comes in and he dines with, with us personally, individually. But we also know that since it's actually his table because he's prepared the food, we are aware of the fact that actually we're seated with his entire household. And so this becomes that imagery of the the wedding feast remember we did also look at the parable of the the wedding feast where the the man calls all the people in from everywhere so yeah so this is what it comes down to so how do we repent firstly when we repent and we overcome what do we overcome double-mindedness we overcome we learn to overcome the dynamic where our attention is drawn away by something or someone else we learn to uh, love our children and our family members and do our jobs and clean our houses and fulfill our responsibilities on earth without diverting our full attention from the Lord. That's walking in the Spirit. Mm. Living in the Spirit and walking in the Spirit. We learn to, uh, to exist in a way that we don't no longer go into the flesh. Mm, mm. Where we no longer get uh, our attention drawn away so easily. Mm. So what needs to happen? We develop the ability to pay attention to everything at the same time and remain in the spirit. Be seated at the table while uh, organizing our lives, loving the people around us, mm. speaking... But the fact is we keep our value system mm. uh, in place by principles, by basic principles. That's how the value system is governed. Because the value system will remain from the day that you are resurrected. I love the Lord with all my heart. But the way that you spend your time, the way that you make your decisions, where your thoughts go, and the way you speak, this is practically... Uh, what is going to determine your true state of being. Because he says, do the works you did at first. Now, what did you do at first? You left this realm and you went into the spiritual realm. You left the flesh and you went into the spirit. Mm. That's the works that we do at first. Mm. So, repenting from this is to identify the fact that I have diverted my attention. Mm. Something else has drawn my attention. Mm. We call that Doubt and unbelief, double-mindedness. Exactly. Now, it could go to the level where doubt could be that I start doubting that the Lord is going to provide for me. So I start working overtime at work out of fear or anxiety or even because I've now decided to put a new swimming pool in and now I need to earn more money to cover that. Or we, need, we decided to buy a bigger house, bigger bonds, and I have to work uh, more hours a week. And so it's when our value system starts determining um, uh, what we're going to do in our practical life. And mm. our value system uh, spiritually remains the Lord comes first. But the value system on earth was, um, I need a new car. There was nothing wrong with the old one, but I like the new model. 
And so now I'm going to work harder to be able to afford that. And this happens mm. to believers. Mm. It happens to believers. We cannot deny it. And it happens little bits at a time. Yeah. Um, uh, so we want to watch out for these things. How do you overcome? By doing the things you did at first. And how often? Every day. All the time. Non-stop. Never stop. We do the first works for the rest of our lives from the day of our baptism. It's a simple matter of return, repeat, redo. Mm. There was very clear revelation in the beginning that led you to the place of uh, repenting. You saved by grace, so it was inclusion, bringing in. You, were, you opened the door, He came in. There is the saved by faith, and we're going to release a shorter clip where we going to look at faith in relation to this thing but right now basically we're talking about overcoming the step that matters where after salvation when it comes to overcoming is doubt and unbelief now how do we apply this when it comes to the seven letters whenever we deal with any form of overcoming mm -hmm. whether we sense that uh, i'm dealing with temptation uh, or i'm dealing with oppression or I'm dealing with doubt or unbelief, or I'm dealing with fear or anxiety, or I'm dealing with um, resistance or tribulation or whatever. When we need to overcome, we always check doubt and unbelief first. We go, where have my attention been diverted? Have I started doubting that the Lord is going to speak to me? Have I doubt, started doubting that the Lord is still leading me? Have I started doubting that um, the Lord is going to provide for me? Mm. Have I started doubting my positioning in Him? Have I started doubting His being at the table and dining with me? Have I started doubting the, my eternal security and safety, eternity mindset? All those things, we check those things. And these are the things that come in first and open the door for us to actually fall mm. away. Remember, this is now after the steps that we find in the seventh letter. So now we are going to teach on all those steps. But the way that we do it, first step out of the seven steps is no matter if you have to deal with a fourth level of overcoming, you start with the first step every time. You never skip it. You do first step, second step, third step to get to the fourth step. And this is why this is so important. Because the first step of overcoming is I need to be in the spirit. I need to be positioned in the way that I was positioned after yes. uh, uh, salvation. And the moment that we make sure that our positioning is right in our thinking, where am I focusing? Was I focusing over there and I need to focus back from there? Am I living from my positioning in the heavenly realm down into this world? If I started living from here to there, I have to reposition. That's why this is the first step. Never start from step number two. Mm -hmm. Never try and take a shortcut. We do the works we did at first first. Then we do the other steps of overcoming. Exactly. It's as easy as never break the sequence. And the first step is this. Remember from where you've fallen. Remember the work you did. So remembering is the first step in overcoming. Remembering. Remember I told all of you that you will, for the rest of your walk, you will refer back to your baptism. 
It will become a marker. Your baptism and resurrection literally becomes the thing you remember. You remember the peace. You remember the rest, the peacefulness. You remember the quiet in your mind. You remember the assurance of salvation. You remember the assurance of the Holy Spirit's um, um, uh, presence with you. You remember the way he, sh- he opened the word for you. You remember your eyes were opened. Your understanding were opened. You remember the innocence, the virtue that you were given. You remember the hope that you had for the rest of your walk on earth with the Lord. You remember your hope that you have for eternal life, how clear and how crisp that was. You remember that the kingdom of heaven was the treasure and that knowing Him was all you wanted. You remember that He was right and you were not and that you wanted to be like Him and you wanted Him to become everything in you. This is the first step. This is the first step of all overcoming aspects in our lives and we will overcome Mm. most days of our lives. So we will go through a process where we refer ourselves, we discipline ourselves back to remember resurrection. Remember from where I've been saved. Remember where I am now. Remember my priorities. Mm. Remember what's valuable. Mm. If you boil it down to the basic value of your salvation, you knowing Him, you being in Him, then the process of repenting is very quick. And it's from this place that He will immediately take you back to the positioning in the garden. Mm. Because, see, that's where... You are again in the state of Adam, the moment before corruption, where you just walked with God and there was nothing else. You didn't have your own will activated. There was no fear, anxiety, no doubt, because your will was not active. We remember the absolute surrender that going into the water brings, and then after that, nothing you really will. You just want what the Lord has for you. Mm. And this is him taking you back to the paradise in the garden and he will give you the fruit of life to eat. Mm. Now, this is very important to understand that him giving you that fruit is going to give you the same impacted renewal of sight and understanding. All of a sudden you'll understand where you were. You can return back to that place of clarity over and over and over. Mm by eating from the tree of life. Okay, bye-bye.